0: My friends jared halverson here welcome back to unshaken i am so looking forward to this week's lesson only one revelation section 93 but oh what a revelation it's one of the deepest doctrinal ones that we have in the doctrine and covenants and so i'm looking forward to digging in before we do though i wanted to make a quick announcement uh, it, the fall is here depending on when you're watching this video and what the fall means a new uh, school year for most people around the world and that means a new semester of Institute. If you are between 18 and 30 years old, we would love to have you come and join us. If you have siblings or children or grandchildren that are between 18 and 30, that's the age range for Institute. And you can be a student or a non-student, you can be single or married, you can be a member of the church or not a member of the church, Uh, Institute is for you. And wherever you happen to be in the world, there will be classes somewhere nearby. In fact, if you're on the Wasatch Front, there's a new website that tries to gather together all the institute possibilities for you. It's called YAConnectSLC.com. YA, there's Young Adult uh, Connect. We want you all to come together and connect with each other and connect with the Savior. Uh, SLC, Salt Lake City, is, is where I teach in the, at the University of Utah. But there's other institutes all over the valley, and that site will give you access to institutes all over the Wasatch Front. If you're outside of that, uh, there's an institute app that you can download uh, that will show you all kinds of possibilities for institute classes wherever you happen to be. Check it out and find a class nearby. I always say, look at where you live, where you work, and where you go to school. And depending on where those three places happen to be, there's gonna be an institute class that's convenient for you. Like I said, I teach at the University of Utah Institute, and I'm so excited for my, my classes this semester. I get to teach a bunch of Come Follow Me classes, so it'll be Doctrine and Covenants, just like we're doing here, uh, although a lot shorter to fit into class time. Uh, I'm teaching a class called Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon, which is a topical approach to the Book of Mormon, a new new subject every week, uh, and everything the Book of Mormon has to say on it, uh, we'll be digging into. And then another class uh, called Navigating Trials of Faith, where we're going to deal with doubt and disappointment. We're going to deal with faith crisis and difficult questions. Uh, a lot of the things that I've spent the last decade or so trying to make sense of myself, of help, helping people navigate those kinds of things. So anyway, I, I'm really excited for the classes I get to teach. I have incredible colleagues at the U of U and, and friends and colleagues that are at uh, institutes all over the place. And so wherever you happen to be, or your like I said, your siblings, your nephews and nieces, your kids and grandkids, please encourage them to come join us. If nothing else that you've gained from these, these lessons online... I hope that you've come to understand the power of the Word of God. And if you'll expose yourself to it, if you'll bring it into your life, it will change you from the inside out. And that's what Institute is. Plus a lot of other fun social kinds of opportunities we don't get to have uh, as we're doing this online. Anyway, just come. I'd love to see you in class. Now, section 93 a masterpiece of a revelation. And like I said earlier, one of the deeper revelations that we find in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's actually an interesting one because unlike most other revelations, the Lord is very explicit as to what he's trying to accomplish here. A lot of times it's just left to us. uh, Figure it out. Here, he's blatant. Uh, In fact, it reminds me, there's there's one parable I can think of. It's called the parable of the importunate widow, also known as the parable of the unjust judge. Yeah, it's the one where this poor widow is is pleading her case to a judge that doesn't care about her case at all. And so she just keeps on pleading until eventually justice aside, he's just like self-preservation. It's like I fine, I'll I'll meet your needs. I'll I'll reward you with the justice you deserve. Just get off my case. Well, it's an interesting parable, but unlike the rest where Jesus teaches it and then says something cryptic often like He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, Kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. There's a lot more to this than just a bedtime story. But I'm going to let you figure it out. In this case, Luke, who's the one who records this, precedes the parable with the, the moral of the story. In other words, he tells you before the story even begins, this is the lesson you're supposed to get from this. He says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray, and not to faint." See what Luke's doing there? He's making the Lord's purpose behind the parable totally unmistakable. I'm going to tell you a story. It's about prayer. Okay? It's about not fainting. The the purpose behind this is to help you endure in your prayers to the Lord. Well, section 93 is similar in that the Lord gives an explicit explanation of, this is why I'm giving you this. Now, he doesn't do it in verse 1. He doesn't introduce the revelation with that. But when you get to verse 19, that is the thesis statement of this particular section. He says, I give unto you these sayings. So here's the reason I'm giving you this revelation. That you may understand and know, number one, how to worship. And two, and know what you worship. And what's all that for? That you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. That's why the Lord is giving us this revelation. Ultimately, I mean, work your way back, kind of reverse engineer verse 19. He wants us to receive of the Father's fullness. Remember in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood a couple weeks ago in section 84, that if you'll receive me, then you'll receive the Father, and you'll receive the Father's kingdom, and all that the Father hath will be given unto you. He wants to give us of his fullness. Well, how do we get there? Well, we need to come unto the Father in the name of Christ. That's the receiving him that allows us to ultimately receive all that the Father is trying to give us through him. And what is it that would... That would make us want to come unto Him, what would draw us? It's knowing Him. It's knowing who we worship. It's coming to understand Jesus Christ and through Him, coming to understand the Father. It's to know how to worship Him. And if, in that idea of worship, if we can wrap our hearts and minds, our souls around that concept, it will bring us unto Christ and prepare us to receive a fullness of the Father. But here's the problem, I sometimes wonder, do we know how to worship? I think we're pretty good on knowing whom we worship. And this revelation will give us additional insight into that, but how to worship him? I sometimes fear we're a lot like the the Athenians there on Mars Hill where Paul, this is Acts chapter 17, climbs up to the top and and is is looking at all these altars that are there. I mean, there's a Greek pantheon, a whole array of gods that they worship. And just to cover all their bases, uh, Paul notices an altar with an inscription there that says, to the unknown god. It's like, okay, we've got Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and others. Uh, In case we missed anybody, don't feel left out of the pantheon. Here's your altar. And, and Paul kind of scratches his head and says, Wow, these Athenians are so superstitious. So he says to the people there, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. There are times I am haunted by that phrase. Him whom ye ignorantly worship. Do, are we worshiping at all? And if we are, are we worshiping with a certain degree of ignorance? Or do we understand and know who we worship and how to worship him? It's interesting that in the very last public discourse that Joseph Smith gave, shortly before his martyrdom, this was called the King Follett Discourse. The name never made sense to me when I was a kid. I'm all, King Follett? Who's, who's the king? Well, it was just his first name, okay? Uh, Elder King Follett. Uh, But King Follett had passed away, and Joseph Smith is speaking at his funeral. And the King Follett discourse has become, honestly, it's one of the most mind-blowing sermons you'll ever read. Deep, deep doctrine that Joseph gets into. His last chance, really. But I'm amazed when I read it, so much of that deep doctrine that he teaches there grows out of what he learned from section 93. In fact, it reminds me of what section 84 said about Moses, that he sought diligently to sanctify his people, that they might behold the face of God. That's what Joseph Smith is trying to do at that King Follett discourse. And so many of the things he taught there grow out of what he learned in section 93. For example, he says, When we begin to learn this way, we begin to learn the only true God and what kind of a being we have got to worship. Having a knowledge of God, we begin to know how to approach Him and how to ask so as to receive an answer. When we understand the character of God, and know how to come to Him, He begins to unfold the heavens to us and to tell us all about it. When we are ready to come to Him, He is ready to come to us. Can you almost hear verse 19 and what Joseph just said? You need to know how to come and whom you're coming unto. If you'll draw near unto Him, He will draw near unto you. He says that back in section 88. And so today, my friends, I pray that the Holy Ghost will help open the eyes of our understanding so that we can accomplish, well, so that section 93 can accomplish the Lord's purpose to help us understand who and how to worship. Like I've said before, I do a lot of interfaith work, particularly with friends of, of, the, of evangelical churches. Those are born-again Christians. And I sometimes wonder if they come. In fact, I don't even wonder. I know I've had some who have come to Salt Lake City and, and to meet Latter-day Saints and come and do interfaith dialogue with, with young adults, and they'll often go attend an LDS sacrament meeting. And I've talked to several and asked them, what did you think? And as respectfully and kindly as they can, they'll often say how underwhelmed they are, uh, underwhelmed particularly with the worship or lack thereof that they sometimes feel at a Latter-day Saint sacrament meeting. I mean, they'll say, don't get us wrong, you Latter-day Saints are like the nicest people ever. Uh, and you're so, in fact, the word we use, you're so active. Uh, you do so much. They're actually worried about that. Are you trying to earn your way to heaven? Saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not, I promise. Uh, but what's interesting is, it actually hit me, I was studying John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well. Because in that, in that passage, he talks about worship. See, the woman is more focused on where you're supposed to worship. The Jews say you're supposed to do it in Jerusalem. We Samaritans say we're supposed to do it here. Well, Jesus ultimately says to her, the day is coming where where you worship isn't going to matter at all. But how you worship, now that does make a difference. And specifically, the Lord says that true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now think about that phrase, and, and you know me, I'm always proving, trying to prove contraries. Well, I think this is a beautiful one when it, when it comes to worship. He said, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Honestly, I can't think of a better verse to illustrate some of the differences between Latter-day Saints and born-again evangelical Christians, as far as worship is concerned. Here's the contrary, spirit and tr- truth. Do we have both? Or, or do we only claim one at the expense of the other? Latter-day Saints, uh, it, maybe it's an occupational hazard of having the fullness of the gospel, Okay, that we pride ourselves on having that fullness of truth, or at least having access to it as it continues to come. Right, It's an ongoing restoration. Through prophets and apostles, called and ordained by God, we receive that truth. But I sometimes worry, do we hide behind that truth to justify almost a lack of spirit on our part? Because when I go and worship with my born-again friends, oh, there is spirit there. And to me, that's a place where some holy envy arises in my soul. I'm not saying that sacrament needs to turn into a rock concert. Because sometimes I think people can mistake the feelings of the the Holy Ghost for what is simply an adrenaline rush. Or perhaps some sentimentalism or over-emotionalism which might have some overlap with spirit, since the spirit works through the mind and the heart, right? thoughts and feelings, there's going to be emotion there. But if it's mere emotion, without the power, well, spirit without truth. Like that's why we're trying to prove the contraries here. Okay, uh, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say anything to diminish my, my evangelical friends, but I am trying to say something to wake up us Latter-day Saints, to couple our truth with spirit in our worship. I remember years ago doing an intense study on worship in the Old Testament because there are some some rhetorical statements, especially from, from Isaiah, for example, where he shreds the Israelites for their worship. And the Lord basically rejects their worship in incredibly strong language. It was amazing to me. But as I studied it, the more it hit me that, well, this is the definition I came away with, that worship is not merely something that we do. Worship is something we do because of something we feel about something we believe. Did you catch that? Worship is something we do based on something we feel about something we believe. And I fear sometimes that as Latter-day Saints, we're so busy, we're so pragmatic, we're so active, that we're always doing, doing, doing. But in the process of doing, do we sometimes lose sight of feeling And of believing, this hits me sometimes when I'm when I'm offering a prayer over the food. And if all I'm doing is trying to get through it because I'm hungry, instead of well, you know the verse of scripture: "Be still and know that I am God." Are we so overactive, needing to do things, that we never take time to be still and know God? Do we ever take time to be holy, as that beautiful hymn suggests? I've sometimes done this with my students. I'll write temple, W-O-R, blank on the board. And I'll ask them, finish the, finish the statement, the phrase. And so often it will be, oh, I know it goes in the blank. It's a K. Temple work. Oh, wonderful. Yes, there is. But how about this? And I'll erase the K and write S-H-I-P. And it's like, oh, temple worship. Uh-huh. Again, in, in our pragmatism, which is such a, a wonderful pioneer trait, okay? Uh, roll up your sleeves and get at it. Put your shoulder to the wheel. There is work enough to do. And we Latter-day Saints do it. Uh, I don't know if there's a more active faith out there than ours. But if the temple is only a place of work and not a place of worship, then we're missing something. It hits me every time that when I see people basically run through this celestial room which is the ultimate place of worship in the temple. You just performed an endowment for for the dead. You did some temple work. Well, stick around for a while. It usually takes me an hour and a half to two hours just to wean myself off the world and to slow down my ever-racing mind. Uh, I'm finally here in the celestial room. Now I can do some real worship, some pondering, some prayer, some adoration, some Some tapping into transcendence, so that I can be still and come to know God. I think we miss that there's the action of the endowment versus the introspection of the celestial room because we don't do anything there, and that should tell us something uh, often i 'll talk to students or others about about mindfulness, about pondering about about being still and knowing God. And sometimes I'll get this sense from them that it's like, what? That's Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, you, you picture some Buddhist monks that are just meditating all day and they're, they're not doing anything. Well, they are doing something. They're doing something to the soul. They're expanding it as they're reaching upward. There, there are whole monastic orders in Catholicism, for example. There are some that focus on education and some that focus on service. But there are some contemplative orders that focus on, instead of activity, it's about interiority. So it's a big word, but interiority, the, what's happening inside the soul. And like I said, please don't think of that as, as Buddhism. It hit me that the holiest place in our faith, the celestial room of the temple, is also the quietest place in our faith. All the work is behind us. And we're finally in a place where we can simply be still and come to know God. Where we can think about the beliefs that are driving those behaviors and then bring in the feeling that goes behind those beliefs. And actually hit me once that that our modern culture is so busy, so loud, we almost always have a screen in front of our eyes and and sound coming into our ears. It's like we... We can't handle being alone with our own thoughts. We can't handle being still. And no wonder, the adversary does not want us to come to know God. Uh, to me, it's interesting that in school, for example, it's, I think, as, as I trace the history, it started with P.E. And to think, oh, people, the sedentary lifestyle that we live, people need to exercise. And I laugh as I think of my pioneer ancestors going, wait, P.E.? You, you have to, like, plan exercise? What else is there? We're just walking around the farm and <laughs> plowing and chopping trees. All we do is exercise. Oh, well, think, times have changed. Well, if that's the first step, second, I think, was nutrition. If you look at school lunches and things like that, and again, our pioneer ancestors would be like, nutrition? What do you mean? Isn't It's like last week when we talked about the Word of Wisdom. What else are you going to eat besides grain and fruits and vegetables? That is the staff of life because that's kind of all there is. And we're like, well, we've created a few other things since then. And they're not very good for us. So we have to be reminded about nutrition. Well, if we had to be reminded about exercise and then reminded about nutrition, well, it's time that we are reminded about mindfulness, which, which is kind of the worldly way in some ways of saying worship. Now, worship goes far beyond mindfulness because there is a being on the other side. But that idea of of slowing things down, of of pondering and focusing and and exercising the, the mental exertion that Joseph Smith describes as faith to bring in the feelings behind our beliefs, which are behind our actions. If we were to ask our, or our, again, if we were to compare things to our pioneer ancestors, they'd be like, mindfulness? Well, what else is there to do? You just think. I mean, you're out working <laughs> to grow healthy food. Yeah, you just think. You're out in nature and you're just communing with God. And again, we're like, well, things have changed considerably since then. And while those changes have improved our productivity, they have not improved our pondering, they've increased our activity but not our interiority. We've become experts at work, but ignoramuses at worship. So him whom we ignorantly worship, the Lord himself will declare unto us in section 93, who we worship and how to worship him so that we can come unto the father in the name of Christ and in due time receive of his fullness. That's what this revelation is for. So look for it. In verse one, verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who, and then he lists five things that if every soul will do, imagine the promises that come at the end of the verse. Every soul who, one, forsaketh his sins. Repentance is absolutely essential. And two, cometh unto me it's not just what we leave behind. It's what we're coming unto. Come unto Christ. Three, calleth on my name. And while that includes prayer, I think it goes far beyond it. Calling upon his name. That's his priesthood. That's his power. That's his, his doctrine. It's, it's his kingdom. Call upon it. Become fully engaged within it. Number four, and obeyeth my voice. And five, keepeth my commandments. I think there's a difference there. Keeping the commandments, that seems to be the, the, the set, fixed doctrines that apply to everyone. But to obey his voice, that seems more personal. My sheep hear my voice. They know that I am. They come unto me when I call. If, if keep my commandments is iron rod, then obey my voice seems to be more liahona. If keep my commandments seems more institutional, obey my voice seems more individual. You see this process of of worship, of coming unto Him? We've forsaken our sins, those things that are keeping us from Him. Now that the barriers are gone, we can begin to approach Him. As we do, we are calling upon His name. And as we are calling to Him, He is calling to us. Are we listening? Are we obeying His voice? Are we keeping His commandments? Because if we will, the promise at the end of verse 1, anyone, every soul who does these things, shall see my face and know that I am. And that phrase, I am, that's Moses at the burning bush. That's Moses who was seeking diligently to sanctify his people so they could see the face of God. That power of godliness that is inherent in Melchizedek priesthood ordinances so that we can enter into the rest of our Lord. Remember how the Lord introduced himself to him. I am that I am. So Jesus said right as the the Pharisees and scribes were about to stone him before Abraham was, I am. I am Jehovah. I am the God of the Old Testament and the Christ of the New. You'll see my face. You'll know me. You'll know I exist. You'll know that I am. Are we starting to get a sense of whom we worship and how to worship him? We worship the great I Am. We worship Jehovah. We worship Elohim. We worship the Father and the Son. And what is one of the key ways we do that? We come unto them, forsaking our sins and coming unto Christ and calling on his name and obeying his voice and keeping his commandments. What is real worship? According to verse 1, real worship is relationship and discipleship. It's becoming one. And that's what the at-one meant, was always meant to accomplish. In the King Follett Discourse, Joseph taught this. I want to ask this congregation, every man, woman, and child, right, every soul, to answer the question in their own hearts, what kind of a being God is. Ask yourselves. Turn your thoughts into your hearts. I love that phrase. Turn your thoughts into your hearts. Talk about mind and heart coming together. Talk about seeking revelation, right? Turn your thoughts into your hearts and say if any of you have seen, heard, or communed with him. Amazing Joseph would use those verbs because he'd experienced them all himself. Since age 14, seeing, hearing, communing with God, you shall see my face and know that I am. He said, this is a question that may occupy your attention for a long time. It had his for the last, what, 24 years. I again repeat the question. What kind of being is God? Does any man or woman know? Have any of you seen him, heard him, or communed with him? Here is the question that will, peradventure, from this time henceforth, occupy your attention. That's what we should be working toward." Actually, that's what we should be worshiping toward. To come to know him. Remember that phrase back in section 88? That if we'll sanctify ourselves and have an eye single to God's glory, the day will come that he will unveil his face unto us. That's the promise of 93.1. You'll see my face. You'll know that I am. Rend the veil of unbelief. And then God will rend the veil of ignorance. But as he says in that verse in 88... It will be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. But that's what we're trying to grow into. I remember there was a phrase that that President Faust said when he was a member of the First Presidency. He was talking about achieving spiritual excellence. And he said, I would surmise that all who are members of this great church have a desire to see the face of the Savior. This is an available blessing. For he has said, and then he quoted section 93 verse 1, this exact verse. But then he said, Too few of us catch sight of this horizon as we fail to avail ourselves of God's promises. I remember that blowing me away when he said that. It was like kind of a wake-up call. Like I'm aiming way too low to see the face of God. Now don't get overzealous here. Balance your zeal with temperance and patience. Right? His timing, his way, his will but to strive for spiritual excellence. Or, as 93 would tell us, to understand what real worship is all about. To come to know him. To come to feel him. To come to be more like him. To see him. Everywhere we look. Remember what Jesus says as he's headed off to Gethsemane to make all of this possible. John 17, 3. That this is life eternal. That they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To know him. There's an intimacy inherent in that verb. Remember what we're learning from verse 1. Real worship is relationship and discipleship. What would we see in the face of God? There was actually an amazing article years ago by James C. Christensen, one of the great painters among uh, modern Latter-day Saints. And as an artist, he was trying to figure out, how do I portray Jesus Christ in my artwork? He actually had a meeting with Spencer W. Kimball when he was president of the church. And he asked President Kimball, if you were going to hang a painting of the Savior in your office, what would you want that picture to be like? Well, President Kimball took off his glasses, put his face about a foot away from mine, and said, I love people. That's my gift. I truly love people. Can you see anything in my eyes that tell you that I love people in that picture? I would like to see in the Savior's eyes that he truly loves people. It's not affected. It's not his job. He truly loves all people. Would we see that if we saw the face of God? You know, from verse one, if we forsook our sins and came unto him. Oh, what makes that possible is his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Every step that we take in verse 1 to come to see him and know him is a step that, is, that we are drawn into him by the cords of divine love. What will we see when we see his face? We'll see that he loves us. What will we know when we know that great I am? We'll know that he loves us. And that love will not surprise us Because we will have seen it and felt it and experienced it all along the way. In fact, the only thing that will surprise us about that is how unsurprised we'll end up being. That's what President Benson taught. He said, nothing is going to startle us more when we pass through the veil to the other side than to realize how well we know our Father and how familiar His face is to us. What a beautiful promise. The only thing that will surprise us is our lack of surprise. The love of God manifests through the gifts of God all throughout our lives. We'll see him and know that he is. What else will we know of him? Look at verse 2. And that I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That goes back to what we studied in section 84. That the light of Christ is given to all of us. It's that homing beacon That resonant frequency that resonates with truth and light and love and spirit. That is the light of Christ. And to come to know him, to see him in ourselves, to see him in other people. Verse 3, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. I mean, that goes back to John 17 also. I don't know if there's a better passage in the New Testament that defines the oneness of the Father and Son. We're not Trinitarians, okay? Other, do- other churches out there that believe in a, in a three-in-one and a one-in-three and same-in-substance, that's not us, okay? We believe in the members of the Trinity. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. There's our first article of faith. But we don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity that forces them to be only one single being. And in John 17, when Jesus is praying shortly before Gethsemane, he he keeps talking about oneness. And he prays for a oneness among his followers that is reflective of the oneness he feels with his Father. So he prays, Heavenly Father, bless them to be one, even as thou and I are one. Let their oneness be similar to our own. Oneness in purpose, in feeling, in, in attributes, in love. In the, in the objective that we have in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Part of worship, I think he's hinting, is becoming one with God and one with each other. Again, that's what the at one meant was for. Now he's going to get more specific about his oneness with the Father in verse 4. The Father, because he gave me of his fullness, and the Son, because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle, And dwelt among the sons of men. So, part of the Savior's oneness with the Father, it's not just oneness in attributes because we're all on the same team, that's part of it. But according to verse 4, there's also a oneness as far as as inheritance is concerned. In other words, there's no better example of like Father, like Son, than the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ receives certain power, certain attributes, divinity itself, because he is the Son of God. We talked about this at length last year in the Book of Mormon when we studied Mosiah 15, which is one of the trickiest passages in the book because it seems like Abinadi is teaching Trinitarianism as he describes Jesus as both father and son. Well, he's not teaching Trinitarianism. He's teaching the nature of the atonement. Well, the nature of Jesus Christ that allowed him to perform the atonement, that Jesus with his dual inheritance, something he received from his father and something he received from his mortal mother, That as both son of God and son of Mary, Jesus combined both perfect divinity and perfect humanity. Those of other faiths describe it as fully divine and fully human. And yes, we believe he was both. And that's what allowed him to perform the atonement. He could die because of mother's mortality and then overcome death because of father's immortality. And so, in that passage in Mosiah 15, when it talks about Jesus' father and son, we, we described it as we'll add the word side to each. Like in our own inheritance, I got that from my mom's side, or I got that from my dad's side. Well, in Jesus' case, he received immortality from his father's side. He received mortality from his mother's side, or as Abinadi says it, that's his son's side. I am a father and a son. And there are times I feel like father and have to make the hard decisions. And there's times I feel like son and wish that someone else were making those decisions for me. Well, Jesus had both the father side and the son side in him. And you get that sense here in section 93 verse 4. The father side because he gave me of his fullness. That's my, my divine inheritance. And the son side because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle. I was born of a mortal mother. I dwelt among the sons of men. Is this helping us understand a little bit better whom we worship? And perhaps in rising up within us, a desire to truly worship him in spirit and in truth. A God who condescended Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who dwelt among the sons of man who became like us so he could understand us and then lift us back to God right alongside him. He returned to the Father to be one with him. He's trying to help us do the same. In verse 5, I was in the world, there's condescension, and received of my Father, and the works of him were plainly manifest. You see both sides in that verse as well? I was in the world living the life of a son, but I received of my father. There's the life of a father. To do the works of him who sent him. That's where it was plainly manifest. to, To infiltrate enemy territory, so to speak, and bring godhood, to bring divinity into humanity. He's been trying to do the same thing ever since. So what is worship? According to those few verses, worship is oneness. Worship is, is bringing our humanity up into unity with divinity. It's becoming one with the Father through the Son. It's living into our divine inheritance, since we are children of God as well. Now, starting in verse 6, we're going to learn more about the Lord, the Son, growing into this Father's side. Verse 6, John saw, this is John the Baptist, actually, John saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory, and the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. So the preview of coming attractions. Okay? This is, a, this is a, the tip of the iceberg. Boy, does it whet my appetite for more of this record of John. But this is what we do have. Verse 7, he bore records saying, I saw his glory, that he was in the beginning before the world was. Now what we're starting to see here is a repetition of John chapter 1. Speaking of deep, deep doctrine, uh, every other gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin with something a little bit more simple, whether it's the genealogy of Jesus or, or the, the birth of, of Jesus' predecessor in John the Baptist, or whether it's the baptism of Jesus as begins his ministry. Well, each of them has an interesting beginning point. But for John, it's like, oh, you want beginning? Let's go all the way to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The the, the premortal spirit of Jesus Christ, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. There's incarnation, there's condescension, a deep doctrine, and here we're getting a repetition of that. I saw his glory. It was in the beginning. It was before the world was. Section 93 has some of our first hints of the doctrine of premortality. That's going to be taught more clearly as Joseph uh, translates the book of Abraham. I mean, you see hints of that in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, for example, or in John chapter 9. But here we see the premortality of Christ. Verse 8, Therefore in the beginning the Word was, for he was the Word, even the messenger of salvation. And there's an echo of John 1.1. The beginning was the Word. And the messenger of salvation Remember, we talked about this with, with when God spake. Well, there's the word of God. God, as, as architect, sending forth Christ as general contractor. Go create. I, he said, let there be light. And that that word. Word is what connects my mind to yours. I say something and you think it. We, we can communicate through words. You say something and it makes sense to me. Well, the, you are sending a message. So the word is the messenger, and Jesus is the messenger of salvation. That is God's ultimate word, his promise to bring us home. Verse 9, who else is Jesus? He is the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men. And that verse contains some of the Lord's favorite nicknames. His favorite, oh, symbolic titles. What does Jesus say of himself when he descends among the darkness and death in the new world? He says that I am the light and life of the world. Here, as the apostasy is, this woman is coming out of the wilderness of apostasy, and what's he say of himself? I'm the spirit of truth. Error is backing away. I am, I'm the redeemer of the world because the world is in need of redemption. I'm all of these things. You live for a while with darkness and you will come to long for the light and, and love it when it comes. We're trying to learn how to worship him. And if worship is feelings about beliefs that then turn into behaviors, actions, then to come to know Christ as light in your darkness as redemption when you are trapped by sin, to to understand him as spirit of truth in a world full of lies, life life itself in a world where it feels like everything around us is, is gradually dying what's he say in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life if I'm the way then follow me, that's worship If I'm the truth, then believe me, that's worship. If I'm the life, then live as I lived, that is worship too. And coming to know Jesus for who he is, as described in these magnificent verses, how can we not be moved to worship him? In verse 10, it's just the crescendo seems to increase. The worlds were made by him. That's worlds plural, right? Worlds without number have I created. Men were made by him. All things were made by him and through him and of him. Do we have any idea all that the Savior has done for us and for worlds without number? Again, look at the Milky Way and let your jaw drop in awe, in reverence, because that's worship. It's hit me that when I'm out in nature, it is so much easier for me to feel worshipful feelings. It struck me once that we tend to worship the creator of the world in which we live. And if you are are stuck in an urban environment where smog has has dimmed your view of the heavens, where concrete and pavement has dimmed your view of earth, and everything around you is man-made, well, no wonder you begin to worship the creator of the world that you live in. It's a man-made world. And it's pretty impressive. When I walk through the streets of of New York City, for example, you know, head up and jaw open, uh, just, yeah, I'm a tourist, you can tell. I'm amazed by it. But you start to be like, wow, mankind is pretty impressive. Look what we've been able to do. It's like Moses when he says, the the thought that man was nothing, I had never supposed. I mean, yeah, you grow up in the shadow of the pyramids. You're at the temple of Luxor. It's like, man, we made this? Well, we're pretty awesome. But go out in nature, go out in God's creation, and you will begin to worship the God of that world. And I worry that sometimes we're too cut off from that, and therefore we're too cut off from Him. Or maybe we've just, I don't know, lowered God to a a more approachable level. I mean, this is tricky. This is a fine line to draw. He needs to be close enough. This is the infinite and the intimate that we've talked about. They're a really important contrary to prove. And for him to be intimate enough, close enough to us that we know that we can worship him, but to to allow him to be far enough away that we want to worship him in the first place. The awe, the reverence, the respect. I sometimes wonder if we need to reverse the epiphany that Enoch had in Moses 7. Because when Enoch is, is just wondering, like how, he sees God weeping, remember this? And he's just dumbfounded, like how on earth could God weep? And the way he wraps, he tries to wrap his head around this, he says to the Lord, look at worlds without number that you've created. Look at all of this. And if our puny planet is one that, that I don't know, it was a, it was a bad batch, <laughs> well, just flick us off into non existence, and that doesn't diminish you at all. We are nothing. We are a speck in the universe. And our wickedness, our depravity does not diminish from your infinity, your glory. And that's when, the, when God says to Enoch, basically, you've missed the whole point. It's not about me. It's about you. And to see that you won't choose me as your father, that you won't love one another as brother and sister, how can I not weep? When my whole work in glory is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life and you won't allow me to do it, how can I not weep over that? It's not about me and me maintaining my glory. It's about me bringing you into sharing that glory and you're not allowing it to happen. It's, it's about you, not about me. It's the intimate, not the infinite. Now that was a, an epiphany, a realization that Enoch needed. But I sometimes worry as Latter-day Saints, if we've so fully internalized that lesson, that yeah, it is about us. And yeah, God is intimate in our lives. Do we sometimes miss out on the the reverence, the awe, the sense of the sacred that comes from, from maintaining that holy distance and understanding that yes, he wants it to be about us. But we have to recognize that it's that from our perspective, it's about him, too. That worlds were made by him. Everything was through him, of him. And hopefully that brings us to our knees. Maybe get back to Moses's experience and realize just how nothing we are in comparison to him. In verse 11, I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, even the spirit of truth, which came and dwelt in the flesh and dwelt among us. That again should invoke some kind of jaw-dropping awe that he, the Lord of the universe, condescended to come down to be with us and like us. He wrapped our injured flesh around him. As we sing in, this is a, hymn, a Christmas carol we don't sing often enough. Once in Royal David city, but what a powerful line about condescension. He came down to earth from heaven, who was king and Lord of all. You get a sense of the shock that should come to our system with the realization of that reality. He was a king. He was Lord of all. And he came down. This is the spirit of truth. This is fullness of grace and truth. This is the only begotten of the Father. And he dwelt in flesh. The word made flesh. How could he do that? How could he be willing to? In verse 12, I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And then he repeats it with slightly different language in thirteen. He received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And then fourteen. And thus he was called the son of God, because he received not of the fullness at the first. And to catch the phrase that's repeated in twelve and thirteen and fourteen, he didn't receive of the fullness at first. This is in the context of condescension. The word was made flesh. And in taking on flesh, being the son of Mary, embracing that son side uh, to to complement the father side he received from from God himself, he didn't receive the fullness at first. He had to grow into it. Lorenzo Snow has a great statement about that, that when Jesus was born, he was as, as innocent but also as helpless as any other infant. Now, we know that at least by age 12, when he's in the temple, and he says, I am wisting not that I must be about my father's business. It's like, Joseph, I love you, but you're not my dad. Uh, I have a father, capital F, and I'm doing his work. At least by then, it's dawning on Jesus who he really is. But how did he get there? And how long did it take? That, that would be some fascinating history to know. What was family home evening like for a, a young Jesus? As Mary is describing his birth with shepherds visiting and angels singing of wise men coming to honor this, this King and Lord and sacrifice. When Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Well, at what point did she begin to share them with her son? I mean, no one was more worthy than Jesus. And therefore no one had a thinner veil than Jesus. But as we saw in three verses in a row, he didn't have the fullness at first. He had to grow up in God just like all of us. And like I said in 14, that's why he's called the son of God. That son side, that mortal side, that begin, that empty himself of premortal glory to begin at ground zero like the rest of us. There's the intimate side. There's the son side. And how did he grow? Two phrases, one in 12 and one in 13. In 12, he received grace for grace. And 13, he continued from grace to grace. Now, there's a lot of grace there, as there should be. Uh, To my evangelical friends that always say, oh, you Latter-day Saints don't don't talk about grace enough. Well, we should because it's in our scripture. The Book of Mormon is infused with grace. And this passage in section 93 is so so graceful filled as well. But what's the difference? Grace for grace and grace to grace. Grace for grace seems to suggest some kind of an exchange. That the Father is giving grace to the Son. Enabling power is how we often define grace. And what will the Son do with it? Well, every time the Father gives the Son grace, the Son returns it with increase I mean, he's the ultimate example of the parable of the talents. Uh, Every time the Father gives him grace, the Savior multiplies it. He blesses everyone with that grace of God. He's like, Father, look what I've done with the grace thou hast given me. And as a result, he's then ready, verse 13, to continue from grace to grace. You see, if light grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day, if we believe in a doctrine of eternal progression, of an eternal increase, then grace to grace describes this growing up in God. It's like you're on a certain level of grace. And how do you live into it? How do you, how do you, what do you do with that enabling power? Who do you bless? How do you honor God from that level? And by, by showing, again, parable of the talents, you've been worthy of, of these few things, you'll now be made ruler of many things. You will grow from this level of grace to a higher level of grace. Remember preparatory ordinances in the Aaronic priesthood that then prepare you for Melchizedek ordinances? Preparation meets presentation. Well, growing up in God, grace for grace, and then continue grace to grace, until you receive a fullness, because he didn't have that fullness at first. One of my favorite passages in the letters of Paul comes in the second chapter of Philippians. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus thought this way, and he wants us to think this way too. We're going to see that in a moment in section 93. That this is how Jesus grew up in God. Well, guess what? You need to grow up in God also. So this idea of how did Jesus do it? Philippians 2. The King James puts it this way. Who being in the form of God, there's the father side, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There's the son side. There's the condescension. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. You see the incarnation there? This is 93 verse 4. The Son, because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle, I dwelt among the sons of men. Now that phrase from Philippians about, he didn't count it robbery to be equal with God. That's an interesting translation. There's there's some, some insight that you can gain from that. But to make better sense of what Paul meant, some of the other translations out there can help clarify. The English Standard Version, for example, translates it like this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's this idea of it's not robbery to be equal. Well, well, yeah, but to to rob, to grasp, to hold on to it. He didn't feel like he had to hold on to his divinity. He was willing to give it up to come down to be with us and like us. In fact, what the King James translator said, he made himself of no reputation. The English Standard Version says he emptied himself. I love that phrase. He he poured himself out. That's the way Isaiah describes it. To, to empty himself of glory, to not receive of the fullness at first, to have to grow up in God to show us how to do likewise. The NIV, the New International Version, this is its translation of Philippians 2, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Can you you hear Moses? The thought that man is nothing, that never crossed my mind. Well, it crossed Jesus' mind. He chose it to to empty himself, to pour out his glory, to make himself nothing. Why? Why? Because his divinity was not something to be grasped. It wasn't something to be used to his own advantage. He was willing to condescend with us. Of all the the various translations of Philippians 2, my favorite is the International Standard Version. Because it turns it into a poem. And it is true that what Paul wrote there was so powerfully poetic. In God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness, a servant's form did he possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form he chose to be, and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of every one should fall, wherever they are residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, while God the Father praising. You get a sense there of that whom we worship and how to worship him. That Jesus would empty himself, that he would come down, that he would start over in a manner of speaking, To to take on sonship. To not have the fullness at first. But to receive the Father's grace and do something with it. To return it with increase so that he could increase. And grace for grace and progressing grace to grace. There's actually a phrase elsewhere in scripture that talks about being restored to grace for grace. And I just love that. It's like now you're back in the process whatever you've done that to stop that, to get in the way, to descend the staircase instead of to ascend it, the, the times that you've wasted God's grace or that you've kept it to yourself and not shared it with others, that, that you've interrupted the process of growing up in God, well, then repent. Do everything verse 1 says. Forsake your sins and come unto him and call on his name and obey his voice and keep his commandments. And what will happen? You will be restored to this process of grace for grace and continuing from grace to grace to what end well to no end it's endless but to the end of growing up in god to receive a fullness of the father's glory that's what he's after after all don't we all have a son or daughter side just like we all have a father side divinity within us children of god everyone but to grow up in God through the same process. We'll see that clarified in just a moment. But back to verse 15. I, John, bear record. And lo, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, and sat upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. See, this is how we know this is John the Baptist speaking here, who sees... The heavens open, who sees the Holy Ghost ascend in the form of a dove, who hears the voice of God confirming the sonship of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. In fact, it's interesting, when Nephi sees the explanation of his father's dream in in vision and historical form, uh, one of the things he's shown, well, he's asked the question first, do you understand the condescension of God? And Nephi's like, "Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know he loves his children, but I don't know the meaning of all things. And the the angel's like, good enough, uh, close enough. Uh, Yes, God loving his children, there's condescension for you. But he illustrates the concept of condescension with two events. One is the birth of Christ, which is such a perfect illustration of it, that God would come, the word was made flesh. The, the, The son of the father now became the son of Mary. And so all that we saw back in verse 4, flesh his tabernacle, dwelling among the sons of men, there is condescension for you. But just in case Nephi wasn't, hadn't fully wrapped his head around this, the angel then shows him a second scene. And it's the baptism of Christ. Which to me is so eye-opening. Like, wait, wait. I'm, I'm playing Pictionary and you get the word condescension and the first thing you draw is Christmas. You're like, okay, that makes sense. He came down to be like us. He emptied himself. Okay? It was, divinity wasn't something to be grasped. Well, if I missed that one, what's the second picture you draw on Pictionary? The baptism? Well, I guess that makes sense too. Jesus, who was sinless, condescended to our... to do something a sinner would need to do, to wash away those sins through baptism, to make a covenant, to, be, to want to be one with the Father. Ah, that is a perfect depiction of what condescension is. Jesus would descend below all things. He was baptized in the lowest body of fresh water on the planet. It's un- below sea level, the Jordan River. And for John the Baptist to bear witness of this condescension in the very act that he is lowering Jesus in the water to bring him back up again, there's descend and reascend. There's become flesh and to be remade in spirit. That's to come down to earth and to return to God. That is God's beloved son. And each of you sons are beloved. Each of you daughters are beloved of God. And he wants to bring us all back up with him. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place. And so what does John do? He bears a record of it. He wants the world to know In verse 16, I, John, bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father. He didn't start with it, but he got there. Grace for grace, grace to grace, and he ultimately received of that fullness. The fullness he'd had before that he poured out, that he emptied himself of. He wants us to, he's pouring it out into us because he wants us to become full with the fullness of God. Verse 17, he received all power, both in heaven and on earth, and the glory of the Father was with him, for he dwelt in him. There is the intimate remade into the infinite. And he wants that to bring us home to follow the same trajectory. In verse 18, it shall come to pass that if you are faithful, you shall receive the fullness of the record of John. Again, this is just the beginning of that in the beginning. There's so much more, and like I said, it, it makes me salivate scripturally. I, I want more of that. And then, back to our thesis statement of this revelation. What have we been doing for the last 18 verses? Trying to help you accomplish this ultimate goal. I give you these sayings. Sayings about relationship and discipleship. Sayings about oneness and at one mint. Sayings about condescension and re-ascension, about pouring out and filling up, about grace for grace and grace to grace. I give you all of these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship. And hopefully, by coming to know what you worship, you will naturally be motivated to worship him, not only in truth, but in spirit that you will feel things because you believe things and they will motivate you to do things, to, to be still and know that he is God, to take time to be holy, to worship and not just to work, so that ultimately we can come unto the Father in the name of his only begotten Son, sons and daughters all, and in due time receive of his fullness. That's the goal. He says it in 20. For if you keep my commandments, there's a repetition of what he said in verse 1. You shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. There's the oneness. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Now you see what he's after? He, He spent all this time in those first verses explaining how Jesus grew up in God. And then what what is he calling us to do? To grow up right alongside him. To grow up in God with Jesus. If Jesus didn't receive of the fullness at first, and neither do we. In fact, that's why he chose to empty himself, so he would understand us. Perfect empathy, that's what condescension brings. But then to help raise us back to God, progressing grace to grace, as we receive grace for grace, he's asking us to grow up in the way that Jesus grew up. And that's real worship, too. Back to the King Follett discourse. This is how Joseph described it. Here, then, is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God. There's John 17, 3 again. And you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. Now, this is all lowercase g. Okay? We will never leapfrog him We will never usurp him. We'll never take over his throne. That was Satan's plan. But the irony of that was what he wanted was what God was offering all along. A place with him in his throne. One with him. It just has to be done in his way. And and in that way always includes a worship and honoring of God. And a respect for the infinite even as we partake of the intimate. So Joseph goes on. How did they grow up in God? How do we grow up in God? Here's what he said. Namely, by going from one small degree to another, and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace. catch the phrase? From exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to a resurrection of the dead, and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings, to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. You get that sense about being quickened by a portion of the telestial versus the terrestrial versus the celestial? We talked about that in section 88. Are you the 40 watt or the 60 watt or the 100 watt bulb? Right. Well, we're trying to grow brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. We're trying to, to continue to grow up in God. To continue from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. That's what Joseph was getting at. That's what the Lord is getting at in section 93. In fact, in the, in the conclusion of that paragraph from Joseph, I love what he said. I want you to know that God in the last days, while certain individuals are proclaiming his name, is not trifling with you or me. You get a sense of that? God means business. Uh, he's not trifling with us. He's not dangling out some little bauble of joy. It's, it's a fullness of his glory that he's offering us. But, like we learned in section 88, to receive a fullness of that glory, you have to live into a fullness of that law. No wonder he says in verse 20, if you keep my commandments, you've, you've got to learn how to do this. That's doing with the grace what I intended. That's grace for grace, so then you can then take another step forward. Joseph speaks of that in the King Follett discourse too. When you climb up a ladder, so here's this progression You must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step. There's grace to grace. Until you arrive at the top, and so it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But, and this is an important thing to realize, it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil, before you will have learned them. It is not all to be comprehended in this world. It will be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation, even beyond the grave. That is so comforting, uh, because I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. Uh, Yes, I feel like I've progressed from grace to grace in certain areas of my life. And I'm so humbled that the Lord would offer me more based on what I was willing to receive and willing to enjoy. Again, that phrase from Section 88. But to know that even when I, when I pass through the veil, I'm not done with that progress. And Jesus' mm-hmm. progression was, was super speed compared to our slow growth in God. But the fact that God is patient and gives us an eternity to grow into him, that is a beautiful thing. I've shared before that one of my favorite moments in this History of Christianity class I took at Divinity School was sitting across the table from a, a prof- professor of mine that was a, a former Jesuit priest and discussing uh, the, the doctrine of perpetual progress as taught by Gregory of Nyssa, a uh, Cappadocian father from the 4th century AD. Uh, he was grappling with how can, we, how can God preserve our agency uh, and yet guarantee eternal salvation? This is what keeps you up at night in the 4th century, I guess. Because uh, his thought was, if, we, if we're permanently saved, then wouldn't that mean we've, God has taken away our agency? Because as long as we have the power to choose, we have the power to choose poorly, which would then jeopardize our salvation. So which, which gets jeopardized? Does God take away our agency to, to make salvation permanent? Or does, do, we, does he, do we hold on to our agency, in which case we always stand a chance of, of slipping? and of losing the glory that God had promised us. Oh, how do we do this? Well, Gregory of Nyssa's great breakthrough was what he called the doctrine of perpetual progress. And believe me, as a Latter-day Saint, when I first found that, I'm like, whoa, that sounds like eternal progression. Uh, and so me and this Jesuit priest slash professor had this great conversation comparing Nyssa's perpetual progress with Joseph Smith's eternal progression. It was a fascinating conversation. And, and again, this idea of, well, as long as we're continually moving forward, then I can still choose. I'm still choosing progress. But by doing so, it keeps me from ever sliding back. My kids learn this whenever they run up the escalator, one of their favorite pastimes, uh, that although agency has the potential of bringing me down, that's the escalator. It's always moving. And always, that's always the danger. But if I always have something to shoot for, If there's always a grace to grace possibility ahead of me, then I can maintain my agency, but continue to choose it, to to exercise it righteously, to progress, to choose to be more like God, who will always be above and beyond me, beckoning me to continue climbing. Such a beautiful doctrine. I was actually struck that during some of my research for my dissertation, I read all of The Spectator which was the most popular British uh, periodical in the early 18th century. So this is like 1711 and 12. Uh, and it's, it's massive, all these volumes of The Spectator, but everybody read it. Uh, Benjamin Franklin as a kid would, would like memorize passages from The Spectator and see if he could write it back out as eloquently as Addison and Steele did. Those were the two writers, the, the, the principal minds behind The Spectator. In some ways, there's no better way to see what was going on in the early 18th century British mind, or American mind for that matter too, than to read The Spectator. Well, Joseph Addison, one of the writers, had quite the the religious side, and he thought deeply about certain things. And one of the things he thought deeply about was the possibility of the, the permanence of the soul, the immortality of the soul. At the time, some were wondering. I mean, the skepticism is on the rise at that time period as well. The Enlightenment has has that, that way with things. And and Addison is just wondering, there's what evidence is there for the immortality of the soul? And he brings up some other things. But one of the things that he says doesn't get talked about enough is this idea of perpetual progress. And if, if we grow up in life, then why would that end after a short 70 or 80 years? There, there's... We're just starting out, and why stop things there? In one of his longer newspaper articles about religious topics, he said this, and it's a little long, but I think it's worth repeating. How can it enter into the thoughts of man that the soul, which is capable of such immense perfections and of receiving new improvements to all eternity, shall fall away into nothing almost as soon as it is created? Are such abilities made for no purpose? A brute arrives at a point of perfection that he can never pass. In a few years, he has all the endowments he is capable of. And were he to live at 10,000 more, would be the same thing he is at present. Were a human soul thus at a stand in her accomplishments, were her faculties to be full-blown and incapable of further enlargements, I would imagine it might fall away insensibly and drop at once into a state of annihilation. But can we believe a thinking being that is in a perpetual progress of improvements and traveling on from perfection to perfection, after having just looked abroad into the works of his creator and made a few discoveries of his infinite goodness, wisdom, and power, must perish at her first setting out and in the very beginning of her inquiries? You understand what he's asking there? We're just starting. We're just warming up. He went on, The silkworm, after having spun her task, lays her eggs and dies. But a man can never have taken in his full measure of knowledge, has not time to subdue his passions, establish his soul in virtue, and come up to the perfection of his nature before he is hurried off the stage. Life's just way too short. Would an infinitely wise being make such glorious creatures for so mean a purpose? Can he delight in the production of such abortive intelligences, such short-lived reasonable beings? Would he give us talents that are not to be exerted? Capacities that are never to be gratified? How can we find that wisdom which shines through all his works in the formation of man without looking on this world as only a nursery for the next? I love that phrase. Mortal life as a nursery for the next. And believing that the several generations of rational creatures which rise up and disappear in such quick successions are only to receive their first rudiments of existence here and afterwards to be transplanted into a more friendly climate where they may spread and flourish to all eternity. With all that in mind, Addison concludes, there is not, in my opinion, a more pleasing and triumphant consideration in religion than this of the perpetual progress which the soul makes towards the perfection of its nature without ever arriving at a period in it. In other words, words, it never ends. This is eternal increase. To look upon the soul as going from strength to strength. Or as section 93 says, from grace to grace. To consider that she is to shine forever with new accessions of glory and brighten to all eternity. There's that growing brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. That she will still be adding virtue to virtue and knowledge to knowledge. There's growing up in God. There's the, the partaking of the divine nature that Peter talks about. Addison says all of that carries in it something wonderfully agreeable to that ambition which is natural to the mind of man. Nay, it must be a prospect pleasing to God Himself to see His creation forever beautifying in His eyes and drawing nearer to Him by greater degrees. resemblance. Honestly, I I sometimes wonder if finding that one passage was worth reading all five volumes of The Spectator. Uh, to, To understand the truth and beauty behind that, to draw nearer to God by greater degrees of resemblance, Jesus grew from grace to grace. He's inviting us and enabling us to do the same. So receive it, receive grace for grace. Progress from grace to grace. Grow up in God with me. I can't think of a better way to to worship. If all of these sayings were given to know whom we worship, a God of growth and grace, then how to worship him? Follow in his footsteps. They're continuously climbing uphill. So ascend with me, draw near unto me. I think Elder Maxwell put it so beautifully. Let our gratitude likewise be expressed by striving to become, attribute by attribute, more and more as Jesus is. By so living, ours will not then be a mere appreciation of Jesus, nor a modest admiration of him. Rather, ours will be an adoration of Jesus. Expressed by our emulation of him. Oh, there's vintage Maxwell for you. That real worship isn't just appreciation or admiration of Jesus, it is adoration as evidenced through emulation of him. Now, those are big words. Every child learns it with the simple song, I'm trying to be like Jesus. That is worship. That is growing up in God. That is becoming like him so that we can be with him. And with that emphasis on the how to worship, we return to some more of the whom we worship. In verse 21, Now verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn. So nobody understands this process of growing up in God better than he. Verse 22, All those who are begotten through me, are partakers of the glory of the same and are the church of the firstborn. Hopefully that gives us new perspective on that title. We saw it back in in section 76 and elsewhere that this church of the firstborn doesn't just mean the church of Jesus. Uh, In our case, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those within it who are fully living into their covenants. But rather, the the idea of the church of the firstborn reminds us of the fact that Christ was the firstborn in spirit and the only begotten of God in the flesh. There's condescension. And to me, there's something about reminding us of that in the very title of that, that if you're the church of the firstborn, if you can be begotten through me, thus to partake of my glory, then you're being born of me, born in me, born through me also. And birth, that's infancy. There's not a whole lot of growing ahead. That is not receiving the fullness at first. So to me, if to be part of the church of the firstborn should not, us make, should not make us feel superior. In some ways, it should remind us of just how much more growing up we have, just how much growing up in God. I'm a, I'm a baby now. I have been born again. Through the firstborn of the Father. And now progressing grace to grace by receiving grace for grace. I can grow up in God and ultimately receive of his fullness. Partakers of the glory of God. Verse 23. Ye were also in the beginning with the Father. That which is spirit, even the spirit of truth. Now, like I said, section 93 is our first hints of pre-mortal existence. And so far, it's like, oh, well, yeah, the premortal existence of Christ, that, that makes sense. In the beginning was the Word, after all. But the rest of us, oh, yeah. In the beginning, you, ye is all y'all, okay, to borrow from my southern friends. Uh, all y'all were in the beginning just like I was. You were with the Father. Later, we'll learn in section 138 that there we received our first lessons, preparing us to come to earth. And those lessons were in truth. They were in spirit, even the spirit of truth. That light of Christ infused all of us. We we brought it with us as we came to earth. It's who we are because it's who we've always been and who we are trying to return to be. In premortality, we accepted the plan. We, we fought to defend the Savior's role in it. We, we chose to exercise our agency righteously. Are we doing the same here, now? Are we, are we defending the same cause and are we fighting just as valiantly as we always did? If so, then our, our emptying ourselves of, of the premortal presence of God will make it all the more likely that we will return to him, to share in his fullness. That's the spirit of truth. He then defines truth in verse 24. Truth is knowledge of things as they are, present, as they were, past, and as they are to come, future. I mean, this is the three act play that Boyd K. Packer always talked about. The premortality is act one, and mortality is act two, and post-mortality is act three. But because of the veil, we're cut off from Act 1. We haven't died yet, so we're, we're left to trust revelation about Act 3. And here we are, claustrophobically confined in Act 2, where all the, the drama really unfolds and the messiness, and we don't understand backstory to realize why we're in certain situations. And we don't understand the future to know that all the loose ends will ultimately be tied up. Here we are in Act 2. Do we trust in truth? which expands our, our understanding and increases our view of all three acts of the play? Do we see Jesus as, as the, the thread that binds them all together into one great whole? Because that's worship too. It's understanding Christ. I and mean, he was defined earlier as he is the spirit of truth. And if truth is knowledge of past, present, future, if we see Christ's role in past, present, future, Do we trust him? Can we exercise our faith in him? Can we worship him? Knowing he will ultimately bring us home. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Alpha, omega, beginning and end. He's got the whole script. And no matter how often this this play seems like a tragedy, thanks to him, it will end up in triumph. Never lose sight of that. Verse 25 Whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. So there's your choice. Do you want father of lies, liar from the beginning, or do you want spirit of truth himself? Do you want a knowledge of things as they were, are, and will be? Or are you trying to add or take away from that? Adding to that, in some ways it's like, what could you possibly add from the def- to the a- definition of truth in verse 24? If it's the knowledge of everything, past, present, future. Well, maybe the adversary is trying to push us to speculate beyond what has been revealed. That's getting ahead of ourselves and getting ahead of the prophets. That's, that's more or less than that. That's the spirit of wickedness. But also less than this, especially when it comes to eliminating our views of past and future. And focusing on this life only. To think this is all we have. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Oh, that's from the the spirit of the wicked one. Oh, hold to the spirit of truth. As it's defined in 26, the spirit of truth is of God. I am the spirit of truth. John bore record of me, saying he received a fullness of truth. Yea, even of all truth. So trust him. 27, no man receiveth a fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. Isn't that the third time we've seen in this revelation so far? That obedience is where it all begins. That's obediently using the grace that God has given us so that he will then give us more. We've proven we're not swine so he can keep casting pearls. In 28, more of obedience, he that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. This is that moving toward the sea of glass, right? The great Urim and Thummim, all things. We know as we are known, we see as we are seen. We know all things because we can be trusted with that knowledge. We're glorified in truth because we sense the glory of that truth and and are obedient to it. This is allowing the law to govern us so that the law can then preserve, and perfect, and sanctify us. Remember that from section 88. And remember, this isn't just what we're supposed to be doing. This is who we are. Man in the beginning, okay? You're one with me. You were in premortality just like I was. You received these first lessons just like I did. In, In verse 29, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made. Neither, indeed, can be. Again, I warn you: this is some deep doctrine, and it's getting really deep here. Man and woman, children of God, we were in the beginning with God. Well, in what form? As intelligence, intelligence, the light of truth. Well, I thought that was Jesus. Well, yeah, it is. He grew into the fullness far faster than any of us uh, ever have or ever could. But that's our goal to if we are intelligence, if we are the light of truth, if we can't be created or made, then we are co-eternal with God. And this is what, what freaks out the rest of the Christian world. Because they, they, in fact, uh, it's interesting. There's a great book called When Souls Have Had Wings by Terrell Gibbons. It's the history of the doctrine of premortality throughout Western thought. It's, it's a mind-blowing read. But as, as Givens goes through the history of premortality, and we're the only church that holds to it today, but in early Christianity, uh, there were early church fathers who believed it. There, there's evidence in the Old and New Testament, uh, evidence in, in poets and prophets and philosophers and sages throughout history. The way Givens describes it, it's like, I don't know if he uses it, this term, but it's like it's like whack-a-mole. Every time that the orthodoxy smashes it down, it pops up somewhere else. It just... Premortality has so much explanatory power for oh, who we are and, and thoughts when, when, when truth rings true to us, that resonant frequency, things that it doesn't feel like we're learning. It feels like we're remembering. Uh, again, there's so many things about just our mortal experience that, that suggests a premortal experience on our part. And, and here we are. We were in the beginning with God. But as Givens points out in that book, one of the reasons that orthodoxy keeps squashing the idea of premortality, despite its, its explanatory power, is this concern that, wait a minute, if we were with God before, that suggests we're a little too like God for their comfort. And for us, it's like, well, we're comfortable with that. <laughs> we, at least we should be. That's the I am a child of God. Another truth, mind-blowing truth that primary kids sing. I mean, to me, it's funny that while orthodox religion doesn't like what we say in verse 29, orthodox science does. I mean, in some ways, this is the law of conservation of mass, okay? If intelligence can't be created or made because conservation of mass and of matter and of energy and so on suggests that nothing can, that there's no such thing as creation ex nihilo. It's all just, it's been there. It just gets uh, changed in terms of its form. Well, that's... That's revealed truth as far as creation is concerned. That's revealed truth as far as our divine nature is concerned. It's it's who we are. In the King Follett discourse, Joseph describes it this way. Element had an existence from the time he had, God had. The pure principles of element are principles which can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning and can have no end. The first principles of man are self-existent with God. God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, in other words, he had greater light and truth, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. There's divine generosity for you. The relationship we have with God places us in a situation to advance in knowledge, to grow in light and truth, right? He has power to institute laws to instruct the weaker intelligences that they may be exalted with himself so that they might have one glory upon another. And all that knowledge, power, glory and intelligence which is requisite in order to save them in the world of spirits. And that too is part of worshipping God. Remember, everything in this revelation is who we worship and how to worship him. In some ways, what's this worship look like? It's it's living into our divine potential. It's, it's being who we were always designed to be. That's part of that adoration of emulation that Elder Maxwell talked about. You see, it's not just that God made possible our progression to become more like him. It's that we're choosing to live into that process. See, in verse 30, all truth, including the light of truth that constitutes our intelligence, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it, to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. In other words, there's no existence without agency. Because what would the point of existence be without agency? We have to be able to choose, to, to gravitate toward light or darkness. We have to decide what we're going to do and who we're going to become. And so God places this in, this intelligence in its own sphere, to act independently. To act as an agent, rather than to be acted upon as an object. We're learning to use our agency well. We're learning to to resonate and follow that, that homing beacon signal back to the source. We're learning to grow up in God. That's why we have agency to begin with. Verse 31 suggests that. Behold, here is the agency of man. That's what it's all for, to grow up. And here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. Remember we talked about this back in section 84, that if, the, if God is hitting his, his tuning fork, and we're not reverberating, if we're not resonating with that light and truth, something must be off. There must be some kind of corrosion on our tuning fork, because from premortality, we were attuned To that same frequency of light and truth. You see, what gets in the way is our agency. It's it's our only hope, because that's what part of our existence is what we're here for, is we're we're learning to to live into that and choose wisely. But that's also the, the danger that we might not choose wisely. And that, according to verse 31, is the condemnation of man. That's what gets us. We were from the beginning. Light was from the beginning. Truth was from the beginning. Christ was from the beginning. And it was plainly manifest unto us. Why do you think the Savior keeps saying, I am the light that shines in darkness, but the darkness comprehendeth it not? It's not just sinning against me, it's sinning against yourself because you know better. At least you knew better. What's happened in the meantime? Will you receive that light? Verse 32, every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. In some ways, it's because we've reversed our allegiance from the war in heaven. If before we came, we were fighting to preserve agency, to choose the right. Here, do we fight to preserve agency, to choose the wrong? That it's my body, I can do what I want with it. That it's my life, I can do what I want with it. Yeah, careful. It's Paul that warns us against those things. It's like, no, you are bought with a price. It, it isn't your body. It's God's. It isn't your life. It's time God has allotted. And will you use that time wisely? Will you live into the light? Will you, will you just be the real you? The best you? And, and, and yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge truth and live into it. Any sin against that is worthy of condemnation. It's sinning against yourself, your best self. Verse 33, more about ourselves. Man is spirit. Now, he's not only spirit, but he is eternally spirit. Okay, Spirit that is then clothed upon with flesh. Flesh that is then lost in death, but brought back in resurrection. Glorified. Spirit and body together, constituting the soul of man. We gets to that in verse 33. Man is spirit, the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy. And when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. That's why, according to section 138, the dead, as they await their resurrection, feel like they are in a bondage Like I said, sometimes we feel trapped in our bodies in this life. We shouldn't. We will truly feel trapped when we don't have a body at all. And until we are restored to that body, until the resurrection of the flesh, that element and spirit are not together and therefore cannot receive a fullness of joy. That's why the resurrection is so essential. Verse 35, the elements are the tabernacle of God. Yea, man is the tabernacle of God, even temples. And whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. Again, Paul is saying an allowed amen from heaven for that one. It's exactly what he taught. Ye are the temple of God, and that temple is holy. But it's God's temple. It's not just a place for your spirit to dwell. It's the, a place for the spirit of God to dwell as well. 36, he then returns to this idea of intelligence The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. And since that's who you are, it's how you were wired. It's what you're made of. 37, light and truth forsake that evil one. That goes back to what we saw in verse 31. There's your agency, but also your condemnation. You were wired for light and truth. In fact, it's who you are. It's what you are made of. That intelligence, which is the glory of God, its light, its truth, live into it. Forsake the evil one, the prince of darkness, that goes against the light. The father of lies, that goes against the truth. Verse 38, every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, and God, having redeemed man from the fall, became innocent again in their infant state. Innocent before God. Now there's some really deep doctrine there too. Premortality, there we all were, intelligences that God then somehow made into spirits, that's spirit birth, and then clothed upon with element, with body, physical nature, that's physical birth. We've seen the process here from intelligence to spirit to body, all throughout infused with light and truth. Well, at that moment of spirit birth, we were all innocent. That's what 38 says. Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning. Now, it says that God redeemed us from the fall. So we think Adam and Eve there, but hold on. And men became again in their infant state innocent before God. Now, yes, we are redeemed from the fall. Uh, The Lord teaches that plainly in the book of Moses. But there's something else here about becoming innocent again. Hmm. And innocent in their infant state? Well, uh, innocent from what? Well, yes, innocent from the fall of Adam, but also think about innocent from whatever sins we committed in premortality. Now, some would say, we, we, we couldn't sin in premortality. We were in the presence of God. Well, what do you think the war in heaven was? Major sin, okay? Mm-hmm. It's that knowing unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. You can't stay there permanently. But there we were in this war in heaven. Satan, rebellion, yeah, big sin. A third of the hosts of heaven following him, yeah, big sin. And so each of us, there's the, the agency of man. Without it, there's no existence. Well, we existed, therefore we had agency, and therefore we didn't always use it wisely. And yet, Christ's atonement redeems us so that when we are born in their infant state, we could be innocent again before God. Alma 13 has an an amazing phrase. Speaking of premortality, it speaks of a preparatory redemption. So that, think about a preparatory redemption. Even before we came to earth, we were placing our faith and trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's knowledge of things as they were and are and will be. And we knew that Christ would atone And since that atonement was infinite and eternal, it even covered premortal mistakes so that we could be innocent again in our infant state. That's amazing to me. Again, I pray we don't lose sight of that. Why not have faith in the promise of redemption future? Since we can be reminded of redemption past. If, if Alma 13 speaks of a preparatory redemption, I pray we can trust in the perfected redemption that Jesus has already wrought out for each of us. No wonder we're wired for light and truth. No wonder we're wired for faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's what we've always believed. It's what we've always lived into. It's just that in mortality, in Act 2, Believing less than before and after, and only what we have here, no wonder we lose sight. Verse 39, that wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth. How? Through disobedience from the children of men. And how else? Because of the tradition of their fathers. You see, I did worry a little bit back in section 84, when we talked about resonant frequency and tuning forks and homing uh, uh, beacons and so on. That if, if you're not coming into Christ, there must be something wrong with your tuning fork. It must be corroded by something. You're using your agency poorly. And back in 84, the, the one thing that seemed to be standing in your way was your own sin. Now, I, I, I want to be careful with this because I know of a lot of people that as soon as somebody decides to leave the church or they're having a faith crisis or struggling with something, the immediate thought for many is, oh, well, what sin are they trying to cover up? The only reason you don't believe is because you don't want to believe. You have ulterior motives, and it's because you want to keep living in some sinful way. Now, that does exist. It does happen. But it's unfair to automatically assume that that's the case. That in every instance, oh, you, the only reason you lack faith is because you lack worthiness. Oh, it's disobedience. Well, verse 39 suggests that that is one possibility, but not the only one. And another one is the tradition of their fathers. That sometimes it's not that we're living in the wrong way. Sometimes it's that we just perceive the world in the wrong way. I mean, we, we are light and truth. We are intelligence. But the adversary comes and tries to take that away. And sometimes he does it through ideology, through the philosophies of men, through the wicked traditions of our fathers. And sadly, that can sometimes even be traditions that, that grow up within, among church members. Sometimes it's our own culture that gets in the way of light and truth. No wonder, he says in verse 40, that I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. It's what they're made of. They came to you innocent again. They started as light and truth, which is intelligence. God clothed that intelligence in spirit, their spirit birth. We went through our war in heaven, our premortal first lessons, and we must—I guess—we missed a few uh, lessons, or, or ditched class on occasion, or just got a few things wrong. And but through the preparatory redemption of Jesus Christ, we are restored. We are redeemed. And now that you're here on earth, in your infant state, innocent again, living into this light and truth, but unfortunately, the adversary. As, as quickly as he can, will try to take away that light and truth. He'll try to convince you to misuse your agency. He'll try to, to cloud your vision through the traditions of your fathers so that you don't know who you really are or whose you really are. And so you parents, you've got to bring up your children in light and truth. You've got to help them live into who they really are. You've got to teach them according to Things as they were and as they are and as they are to come. Light and truth infuse them with it. Help them overcome their disobedience through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Help them overcome the tradition of their fathers. yeah, Including you, Father, be careful about how you're raising them, moms and dads. You can overcome that through the light of truth, who is Jesus. No wonder parents in Zion were told back in section 68, that you have to raise your children well. You need to teach them so that they understand faith and repentance and baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Otherwise, the sin's on your head. Otherwise, what are you teaching them otherwise? It's just some tradition of the Father, and no wonder that gets in the way of light and truth. Yeah, parenting, major responsibility here. And in fact, that's what he spends the rest of this section on, which to me is really fascinating. Could have easily been a separate section. It's like, oh yeah, some of you guys aren't quite doing as much as you should be at home. So let's fix that. But it's in the context of this revelation, right on the heels of, do you understand who you really are and who you've always been so that this infant that comes into your arms, you realize, whoa, this is an intelligence and a spirit full of light and truth. Someone that I need to help return to God so that they can grow up in him Oh, grace to grace and grace for grace. This is what I need to raise these children on. And one principle that keeps coming up throughout is obedience. Teach your children to obey their true identity and obey and honor and worship and emulate the Father and the Son. It actually struck me once years ago as I was really studying in depth section 93 and kept seeing obedience come up but then kept seeing all these other words of light and truth or intelligence in other words. And so there's all these synonyms that are kind of coming together and infused throughout with with Jesus, since this revelation is about who we worship. I started drawing circles in my notes, almost like a flow chart, to see how does this grow, and that's the same as this, but this is the same as, how does this all come together? And this is what I ended up with. If we start with obedience, which kept being brought up, it's disobedience that keeps us from light and truth. We have to, to raise our children in light and truth. Therefore, we got to overcome disobedience. It's if you'll hearken to my voice and keep my commandments that you'll see my face and know that I am. Over and over, he talks about that. Well, according to verse 27, it's obedience that opens us to a fullness. And in 28, it's obedience that allows us to receive light and truth. So in my flow chart, it's like, okay, obedience brings us to fullness, light, and truth. Well, what is light and truth? According to verse 29 and verse 36, that's intelligence. And what else is truth? Well, 24 and 28 say that truth is synonymous with knowledge. And 28 and 36 say that truth is synonymous with the glory of God. And ooh, that's intelligence, right? The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. All these things are starting to come together fullness, light, truth, intelligence, knowledge, glory of God, all of it grows out of our obedience. That's grace for grace. But then what really blew me away as my flowchart began to grow was seeing Jesus throughout all of this, since this is a revelation about who we worship. Verse 16, who's this fullness? It's Christ. Verse 2 and verse 9, who is the light of the world? It's Christ. The glory of God, verse 16 and 17, that's Christ. Knowledge. In fact, fullness of knowledge. Past, present, future. Who personifies, embodies that? That is Christ. After all, he is the is and was and is to come. And truth. Who is that spirit of truth? That is Christ as well. And what amazed me when I when I started to visualize all of this was seeing that Obedience is not something independent of Jesus Christ. It's what brings us to him through all of those, I don't know, intermediaries that that are synonymous with Jesus. Fullness, light, truth, intelligence, knowledge, glory. Jesus Christ is the focal point of this revelation and of every other for that matter. What does our worship of him consist of? Yes, appreciation and admiration but adoration through emulation. I'm trying to be like Jesus. And not only I, but I'm trying to help my children be like Jesus too. Like I said, that's how the rest of this revelation ends. And ironically, it's to the members of the First Presidency and the presiding bishop. Can you imagine? And, and they all get chewed out. It'd be shocking to to read a revelation in our day. Imagine a conference talk where the prophet just stands up and says, you know, I've been feeling guilty that I'm not doing enough at home. And come to think of it, neither are my counselors or the presiding bishop. I'm sure he could have thrown in the quorum of the 12, but they hadn't been organized yet. It's amazing the the last 10 or so verses in section 93 single out these leaders of the church, leaders of the kingdom that need to be better leaders at home. Again, if it's the tradition of the fathers that might get in the way of a a spirit child of God growing up into their own light and truth until they receive a fullness, then man, you better be more careful and diligent at home. You better raise your children in light and truth. Verse 41, let's start with second counselor and work our way up. Verily I say unto you, my servant Frederick G. Williams, you have continued under this condemnation Ooh, condemnation like he talked about in verse 31, of not living into light and truth. Specifically, verse 42, you have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments, and that wicked one hath power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. I'm grateful for that insertion, as yet. This is not a permanent problem. You can fix things. You can repent and be redeemed. You can begin teaching your children to understand in better ways than you've done in the past. And it's not just that you can, it's that you must. Verse 43, now a commandment I give unto you. If you will be delivered, you shall set in order your own house. For there are many things that are not right in your house. Remember Frederick G. Williams' Revelation in section 90 that one of the roles of the counselors, well take all of the First Presidency, is to set in order the church? Well guess what? Your family are church members too. Your house is part of the kingdom and you need to set in order your house as well. He then shifts from second counselor to first counselor, Sidney Rigdon, 44. Verily I say unto my servant Sidney Rigdon, that in some things he hath not kept the commandments concerning his children. Therefore, first set in order thy house. And then one more step. Now we're at Joseph Smith himself, 45. Verily I say unto my servant Joseph Smith Jr., or in other words, I will call you friends For you are my friends, and ye shall have inheritance with me. So don't let my chastisement uh, convince you that you're, you're forever cast off. You're still my friends. But as friends, I want you to know what I'm doing. Remember, that's what separates servants from friends. So here's the Lord's full disclosure. What am I doing? Well, I'm condemning you. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm trying to help you live according to your light and truth by ensuring that your children grow up into theirs. So 46, I called you servants for the world's sake, and ye are their servants for my sake. There's the chief among you shall be servant of all. But 47, verily I say unto Joseph Smith Jr., you have not kept the commandments and must needs stand rebuked before the Lord. This keeps happening. And Joseph's never shy about publishing his chastisements to the world. Yes, I've got work to do too. But specifically, verse 48, same with his counselors, your family must needs repent. And forsake some things and give more earnest heed unto your sayings or be removed out of their place you see their disobedience is getting in the way of their light and truth that darkness is has the potential of eclipsing the light so raise them well raise them with obedience so that you can raise them with fullness and glory and light and truth so that you can raise them to be like Christ now If you're thinking that, oh, glad I wasn't one of them. Well, the message is for all of us as well, especially all of us parents in Zion. 49, what I say unto one, I say unto all. And so now that we're (laughs) implicated, guilt by association, we're told this, to pray always, lest that wicked one have power in you and remove you out of your place. Again, juxtapose it with that phrase back in verse 39 about It's the traditions of the fathers that can sometimes interfere with light and truth. In some ways, it's like brethren, sisters, all of you. I say First Presidency on down. Be part of the the solution, not part of the problem. Give your children righteous traditions instead of wicked ones or even merely neutral ones. We're up against a lot. The adversary is working overtime on the family. He's interfering with light and truth every chance that he can. And we have to do better to remove him out of our place so that we're not removed out of our place instead. Verse 50, he then implicates by name the presiding bishop there in Kirtland. My servant, Newell K. Whitney, also a bishop of my church, hath need to be chastened and set in order his family. See that they are more diligent and concerned at home and pray always, or they shall be removed out of their place. That's such a great phrase. To be more diligent and concerned at home. To be intentional parents. Honestly, I'm downright offended by a verb that is often used to describe the, the act of procreation from a dad's perspective. It's called to father a child. As if fathering simply meant the act of procreation. Oh, I, the the child has been conceived and so my fathering is done. Are you serious? No, the fathering has just begun. Believe me. I mean, we don't do that to moms. We don't say, oh, she mothered a child. No, mothering has the obvious connotation of a lifelong nurturing of the child, helping them grow up in light and truth. To To father a child should be just as perpetual, just as eternal, just as nurturing, as mothering a child is. I sometimes laugh in Elder's Quorum, sometimes when they'll say, oh, there's a release site activity, so brethren, make sure you're home, you stay home and babysit the kids so that your wives can go to this meeting. And it's like, there have been a few times I've raised my hand and go, um, when they're your own kids, it's not called babysitting. It's called parenting. (laughs) Okay, it's called fathering. And if we're going to raise our children in light and truth, then we have to be more diligent and concerned at home. And, and often that seems to be a, a male father issue more than a female mother issue. Both genders should be struck by that, that oft-quoted statement from President McKay that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. Both genders should be struck by Harold B. Lee's statement that the most important work we do is in the walls of our own home. Both genders need to be more careful, more diligent, more concerned at home because God has placed within our care intelligences clothed upon with spirit, freshly clothed upon with element, light and truth embodied our own personal condescension, a little incarnation that we are now responsible for. I pray fellow moms and dads, or grandmas and grandpas, uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters, all that we can take one another seriously and take more seriously our responsibility to raise one another in accord with the light and truth that defines us all. That's what the Lord is asking the first presidency and the presiding bishop to do. You, with everything else on their plate, if God is still prioritizing their family, how much more important is it for us to keep in proper perspective where our best efforts ought to be going? In verse 51, he returns to the first presidency with further instructions. Now I say unto you, my friends, let my servant Sidney Rigdon go on his journey. Make haste, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the gospel of salvation as I shall give him utterance and by your prayer of faith with one consent, I will uphold him. In some ways it's like, wait, wait, I thought you told me to go back home and spend more time with my family. Well, Yes and no. It's not an all or nothing in either direction. And balance is the name of the game here. Because, yes, you have heavy burdens at home and abroad. In verse 52, same with the rest of the First Presidency members. Let my servants, Joseph Smith Jr. and Frederick G. Williams, make haste also. It shall be given them even according to the prayer of faith. And inasmuch as you keep my sayings, there's obedience again, you shall not be confounded in this world nor in the world to come. And specifically, what should some of that work done in haste uh, entail? 53, verily I say unto you that it is my will that you should hasten to translate my scriptures. Get back to the JST. There's still more work to do. So hasten. And while you're at it, obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms and of laws of God and man and all this for the salvation of Zion. Amen. Yes, you're a father first, Joseph and Sidney and Frederick and Newell but you are a servant and friend of mine, second. And so there is work to be done. JST, spread the gospel, uh, study. Remember we saw that spiritual education coupled with secular education back in section 88. I mean, there's a school of the prophets you're responsible for. So go learn history, countries, kingdoms, so that you can magnify your calling, perform your mission. That's what the First Presidency was specifically counseled to do back in section 90. So there's other areas that they need to be diligent and concerned as well. All of it is for the salvation of Zion. But again, in the context of what he said in this, in this page, this last bit of the revelation, it's not just for the salvation of Zion as a whole. Don't lose sight of the little patch of Zion that you call home. Your kids are still your most important church members. My kids are still my most important students. Am I raising them in light and truth? I'm struck by what God said to Abraham as he's choosing who will be the father of the faithful. The household of God. Who's it all going to begin with? Well, it's going to begin with Father Abraham. I mean, Ab in Abraham means father. It's, it's who he is. It's what he was, was sent to earth to become. An exalted father. That's Abram. A father of multitudes. That's Abraham. And the Lord says of him in Genesis 18, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord. And do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Do you catch that? I want to bring about what I've I've promised. I want to keep my word since I am the word of God. But to do that, I need to find someone that will keep my word as well. And raise his children to do likewise. To, to, To raise righteous generation after righteous generation intelligence is still growing up in light and truth. What I love most of all in this discussion of family responsibilities is the fact it's in the revelation about who and how we worship. As I said at the beginning, I think too often we ignorantly worship and we don't take enough time to to be still and come to know God. And often what gets in the way of that, if we want to use that phrase, is all the responsibilities we have at home. Well, I'm so reassured uh, and in some ways revitalized by what the end of section 93 tells me, that you want to worship me? Then yes, keep forsaking your sins and coming unto me and and calling upon my name. Keep, Keep seeking to see my face and know that I am. You want to worship me? Then yes, continue in your own personal, individual efforts to grow up in God. To receive grace for grace and continue from grace to grace until you receive that fullness. But all this stuff that you're doing at home, by way of family prayer or family scripture study or family home evening or family activities or all those other things, time spent parenting, fathering, mothering your children, That's not getting in the way of your worship. That is your worship because they were my children long before they became yours. Please, please raise my children in light and truth. Help them emulate the Savior and you will find yourself emulating him as well. Because what did he do? His whole life, his whole ministry was spent Raising other people's kids. Helping them to grow up in light and truth. No one was more diligent and concerned at home than Jesus Christ who did all things for the salvation of Zion. May we worship the Lord in that way by raising a generation of worshipers who know to worship the Father and the Son in spirit and in truth. I pray that our recognition of Jesus may lead to a greater appreciation for Jesus, a deeper admiration for Jesus, a more heartfelt adoration of Jesus as we strive day by day and attribute by attribute to live into a full emulation of Jesus.